All right, I got a good one for you. Why'd the spy cross the road? Because he was never really on your side. On today's episode, I'm not going to be talking about espionage per se, but rather I want to discuss something that's closely related to it. I want to tell you about something called cryptography. Over the past few years, while being in the math department of my school, I've heard people use this word a lot. And as time goes on, it seems that I keep hearing it more and more. And yet I didn't really understand what cryptography was until I started doing research for this episode. If you're like I was, let me give you a little rundown. So, as it turns out, cryptography is merely a section of an overall field that we call cryptology. This is a field that's strongly linked to mathematics, computational complexity, or in other words, how difficult it is to solve math problems, and of course, computing technology. In a nutshell, cryptology is the study of hiding information, as well as solving or uncovering that hidden content. Now, cryptography is the concealment I first mentioned, while cryptanalysis is the solution part. However, I've been surrounded by cryptology and cryptography being used interchangeably, so forgive me if I accidentally say the wrong one at some point. Although that's honestly getting a bit pedantic there. Anyway, do you remember when you were a kid how restaurants' kids' menus and, I don't know, the backs of cereal boxes would have those puzzles where you'd have to uncover some secret message? The ones that I most vividly remember had specific keys that outlined the rules you'd have to follow in order to decipher them. Each key would list out which symbol number, or even letter, represented which letter that you wanted to uncover in order to end up with the secret message. This is, in all truth, a cryptological problem. In fact, this example, where you have to go in and substitute pieces of the encoded message in order to uncover the hidden note, is one of the two most well-known and long-used methods used in encryption and decryption. Specifically, this is an example of a substitution cipher. So, if I were to decode some string of symbols, knowing that a star represents the letter H, um, a dollar sign stands for the letter S, and the number 8 represents the letter A. I just picked those at random, by the way. And so on. I would be solving a substitution cipher. Now, as you may have guessed, when making substitution ciphers, you always need some kind of key like this. Meaning, there needs to be some set of rules or a mapping that someone can use in order to decipher the code. The second encryption method that we know about right now reminds me, in a way, of the game Boggle. Insert Peggy Hill noises. I'm talking about something called a transposition cipher. Much like how if we transpose a graph, we're shifting or moving it around on the plane, a transposition cipher is where we're shifting or moving around letters of a message. So 
one of those word scramble puzzles, again, like we've seen on kids' menus in the backs of cereal boxes, can kind of be considered an example of a transposition cipher. But really, there actually has to be some set of rules or pattern that someone can use to follow and solve the cipher as well. Also, note that we can combine substitution and transposition ciphers in the real world, which hopefully is making you see that cryptology can get very complex. And advanced cryptanalysts are really good at solving puzzles. By now, I think you understand the, that the premise of cryptology is this. There's something that needs to go from some sender to some receiver. And while mathematical and technical knowledge or skills are needed to encode, decode, and transmit information, I don't want you to be thrown off by the use of math and tech. My reasoning why is backed up by something that this scholar named Sundar Sarukai uh, mentioned in an article of his. Natural language is already the first example of a system of codes. And you may be saying, I'm sorry, what? That, that sounds just fake. But think about it. If a sender and a receiver of a message speak the same language, but someone who is eavesdropping doesn't, the eavesdropper isn't going to know what those two people are saying, at least not right away. So, in a way, we're all cryptologists, which in turn helps me prove the point that we all inherently have at least a little bit of math brain in us. But getting back on track, what if we're not looking into languages that we've already spent a good chunk of human history trying to translate? What if we're just talking about some kind of cipher that has a key that only the sender and receiver can know? Well, then we run into the age-old question. How do we establish a key without eavesdroppers overhearing and immediately knowing how to read our message? This problem of us trying to figure out how to keep the key only in the right hands is called the key distribution problem. I mean, if you write a secret message on a note to your friend in school, it would defeat the whole purpose of hiding the message if you also included the instructions on how to read it. I mean, for a codebreaker, that would be just fantastic, wouldn't it? Well, in the real world, it's rarely the case for cryptanalysis to be so simple and straightforward. One of the most important factors of decryption is statistical analysis. In the 9th century, a scientist named Al-Kindi from Baghdad published the earliest known essay on cryptanalysis. Al-Kindi pointed out something that helps cryptanalysts who are solving relatively simple substitution ciphers, and that is this. Understanding how the frequency of different letters or characters used in world languages can guide you in figuring out the key that the cryptographer used. So, for example, the letter E is the most frequently used letter in the English language, okay? If some cryptographer encodes their message with a key like, I don't know, shifting each letter of the alphabet forward by three spots, so like A becomes D, B becomes E, C becomes F, D becomes G, E becomes H, and so on, the cryptanalyst could look at the encoded message 
count how many times each letter appears in the cipher and see that H is one of the most common letters in the message. They then combine what they know about letter frequency in English, natural, original English, and interpret that the H's are actually E's. This is already useful in and of itself, but the cryptanalyst can also use this newfound clue to reverse engineer the code, so to speak, and figure out how the original alphabet was manipulated, thus enabling her to finish deciphering. Again, though, note that this is all in the case of a relatively simple substitution cipher. Cryptographers have gotten more and more advanced with their approaches, as we'll soon discuss. In fact, now that you have a good, basic understanding of cryptology, let's look into one of my favorite parts of this all. The history, and current state, of the field. Beginning where else, of course, but with the world of ancient Greece. About 4,000 years ago, people would exchange pieces of paper that had been written while wrapped around some kind of cylinder. They'd send the letters to each other, unrolled, and you could only read that message if you knew the diameter of the original cylinder and recreated that wrapping. After ancient Rome took over, Julius Caesar implemented a cipher system whose mark on cryptography can still be seen today. While in correspondence with his generals throughout his military campaigns, he'd shift the letters of the alphabet by three spots, which is what we now call the Caesar cipher. Now, I'm still not sure if the Caesar cipher is just the alphabet substitution cipher that uses a shift by three key, or if the Caesar cipher includes all 25 possible keys that we could use for this letter shifting. That number 25, by the way, comes from the 25 possible spots that we could shift any letter of our alphabet over to. But no matter what, we can see the mathematical interpretation of the Caesar cipher by considering basic addition and subtraction. In order to encode a message using the shift three Caesar cipher key, you'd add three to a letter's position in the alphabet. Whereas in order to decode it, you subtract three from a letter's spot. And while we're all aware of and pretty comfortable with addition and subtraction, there's another kind of operation that we can use when mathematically describing what happens in a Caesar cipher. It's called modular arithmetic. And in case you don't already know what that is, or in case you're intimidated by the sheer sound of it, let me explain it to you in the most practical sense that I know of. Picture a clock. You know how when we use the 24-hour format to tell time, we say that 1700 means 5 o'clock p.m.? Well, we're subtracting 12 from that 24-hour format and finding the remainder. This is an example of modular arithmetic. In math terms, we say that 17 is equivalent to 5 mod 12. And we use 12 because that's how our traditional clocks are set up. When we're talking about shifting the letters of the alphabet, we need to consider how there are 26 total positions for all of the letters, and include this in our modular arithmetic. So getting back to the history part, we can also look to ancient Hebrew cryptologists for a significant contribution in the field. The Atbash cipher is another famous example of a historic substitution cipher. To understand this one, imagine that we've completely written out the alphabet on one line, and then we write the alphabet backwards directly below it, or beside it, depending on 
whether or not you pictured a horizontal or vertical line first. Um, so our A has become Z, B has become Y, and so on, until we see that Z has become A, of course. And there you go. That's the Abash cipher. It's not just Western civilizations, though, that we can look to for information on cryptology's history. India was, and I quote another scholar here, responsible for the first reference in recorded history for the use of cryptanalysis for political purposes. Also, while there's not much evidence of China playing a significant role in cryptography and cryptanalysis development, I think it's definitely worth mentioning why that is. You see, in early Chinese civilization, most secret messages were memorized, and messengers would need to mentally carry it until they were able to orally recite it to the receiver. So, in actuality, the Chinese wouldn't just be concealing the meaning of the message, they'd be hiding the existence of the message. This is what we call steganography, and it's the act of covert secret writing, whereas cryptography is overt secret writing. Now, as we circle back to Western civilization, there's a really famous piece of cryptology's history that I want to tell you about. A remnant from ancient Egyptian society, the Rosetta Stone is a relic that historians have cherished for centuries. And no, I'm not talking about Rosetta Stone as in that computer-based language learning program that was really popular some years ago. Actually, I'm talking about an Egyptian stone tablet that was taken out of a city that sat just about 35 miles northeast of Alexandria. To the Europeans who took the stone back with them in 1779, this city was called Rosetta, hence the famous name. This tablet was an artifact that historians and linguists alike were fascinated by, and while so many scholars were determined to translate it, the Rosetta Stone secrets weren't uncovered until the 19th century. You see, the entire piece was written in a few different extinct languages, which complicated the entire translation process, of course. So, in hopes of translating the tricky Rosetta Stone, the eventually successful scholars, did what any great cryptanalyst would do. They used what they already knew in order to decipher what they didn't. Out of all the complex languages, these translators knew enough of one to the point where they could use it, alongside principles from cryptology, to finally unearth its message. And wouldn't it be hilarious if I just left things off there? Like, I, I didn't even tell you what the Rosetta Stone's about. No. No, don't worry, I'm not doing that. It turns out that the tablet was a fragment of an even larger stone structure that had been written from top to bottom about Ptolemy, who, in case you don't know, reigned over Egypt for some time. Now, I've probably been making it seem like the message from the Rosetta Stone was what made it so valuable, but really, what made this tablet so important was how it could be used as a tool to understand ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, and thus, history. Though you might end up hating me for it, I'm gonna quote Wikipedia to sum it up. The Rosetta Stone is no longer unique, but it was the essential key to modern understanding of ancient Egyptian literature and civilization. Now, the role of cryptology in the story of the Rosetta Stone doesn't have the dramatic flair that it does in so many other stories. The situation wasn't really a matter of life and death, but 
If you're looking for something more intense, I suggest looking into the tale of how Mary, Queen of Scots, apparently sent coded letters detailing a plot to take down Elizabeth I that were eventually intercepted, deciphered, and led to Queen Mary's execution. Or, you know what, perhaps look into the ciphers that Americans employed throughout the Revolutionary War, all in order to inform General George Washington about details on British forces near New York. While legend has it that they took extra precautionary measures by using invisible ink, we can say for sure that a majority of the code that they used was developed by a major named Benjamin Talmadge, and that the work of American cryptologist James Lovell quote-unquote set the stage for America to win the war. But of course, I feel like I need to give you more details on the history of cryptology throughout the Second World War. And on that suspenseful note, I'm going to leave you hanging so that I have plenty of room next time to tell you all about it. Why are so many of us fascinated by World War II? And please don't misinterpret my meaning behind fascinated here. I just mean that there always seems to be this common interest in learning more about that specific war. I mean, partially, my guess is that there are a lot of different big deal pieces that we can look at when we're talking about World War II. But who knows? We'll pick back up on all this next episode. In the meantime, feel free to take a look at the website, spaghettipie.wordpress.com, for episode notes and whatnot, or to email me at spaghettipie at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. I'm actually expecting to have part two of this done sooner than I usually would, because I have all the content researched and ready to be written up, so hopefully that's how things actually turn out, but I mean, you know. Either way, thank you so, 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 so much for listening, and I hope you're looking forward to next time as much as I am. The theme song for Spaghetti Pie is Pluck It Up by Dan Heenig. Special thanks to my advisor, Dr. Patrick Shipman, and my sister, Alex, for creating the cover art for this podcast. 